Sharing conversations from New Mexico and beyond. I'm Chelsea Reedy, and the show is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Taos Search and Rescue is an all-volunteer, nonprofit community organization that assists people who are lost or injured in the New Mexico wilderness and beyond. The team searches in all seasons and engages in operations to locate lost hikers, climbers, hunters, campers, children people with Alzheimer's or dementia, skiers, snowmobilers, and more. The group consists of 10 specialized units, including a medical unit, canine unit, and a drone unit. They perform roughly 20 to 25 search and rescue operations per year. Today, Elise Morion talks with Delinda Van Brighton. Van Brighton is the president of Tau Search and Rescue, as well as the canine and base unit leader. Van Brighton's commitment to this organization is a natural outcome of her dedication to her community and her love for animals. In 2003, Van Brighton helped resurrect Taos's animal shelter, Stray Hearts, and her 20-year involvement with Taos Search and Rescue has led her to teach at state conferences and for individual search and rescue teams in both navigation and canine. Here's Elise Morion. My first question is really a very basic question about search and rescue, and I would yes. like to know a little bit about exactly what you do. I believe you've um, gone missions to find people. Yes. Is that correct? That is correct. Search and rescue um, in New Mexico is really um, under the auspices of the Department of Public Safety and the state police. So when you have uh, a search and rescue team here can respond to anywhere all over the state. So we primarily work in our area, Taos County and a little bit beyond Santa Fe, Los Alamos, but we can be called and have been called to grants, Rio Doso, mm. all kinds of areas beyond. And we are looking for people who are lost or injured that are in wilderness type areas or what are called off-road areas. That signifies a lot in New Mexico because, mm -hmm. you know, it might be state land, national forest, BLM land. It might be private land even. Uh, of course, if it's private land or if it's uh, native lands, we get the permission of those um, either individuals or those agencies in order to operate on those lands. And then mm -hmm. how does that work as a team? I know, I mean, I, I knew about the dogs, but I'm assuming yes. there's a lot more than, yes. you know, dogs and the, their handlers to search and rescue. And I'm curious what other units you have working. There, there's a lot more to search and rescue than just dogs. Dogs <laughs> is one resource only. Um, there, so Tal Search and Rescue, which is a team that was established in 1978, well over 40 years old, we have been primarily a ground uh, a ground pounder. It's called ground pounder, boots on the ground, basically, okay. team where we go out. In the last few years, we have established specialty units. We have had specialty units before. Now we have 10 specialty units. And those specialty units are, uh, it's, it's a great way to, um, to both inspire membership and also to be able to respond in a more comprehensive manner. 
And so now we have ground, base, which we've mostly always had, um, ground and base units, medical unit. Mm -hmm. We have canine, of course. Mm -hmm. We have technical. We have swift water now. We have drone. We have winter. We have bike. And we have off-highway uh, off vehicles called OHV. What this has done for us is uh, multifold. One, it allows certain people to train to a much higher level of expertise mm -hmm. than when the, we train the whole team in, in just everything, right. which we have to do. I mean, team members have to know medical. They have to know um, lost person behavior. They have to know search strategies and techniques. They have to know navigation. That's one of the beauties of search and rescue. Mm -hmm. You're always learning. You're still learning. And now we have the specialty units where people can, if they have a passion, they can focus on a specialty, mm -hmm. which is really great because mm -hmm. then that ups our ability to respond and our game in responding. And so how, how does that work when you get a call when I... Who is it that calls you? The state, the police? Uh, yes, we are. Well, first, um, a person would call 911, uh -huh. and that's how we are initiated, basically, by starting with 911. 911 mm -hmm. then calls the agency that has jurisdiction. Okay. And then the agency, if it's, uh, decides if they need search and rescue, mm -hmm. basically. And if they do need search and rescue, then that uh, there is a call that's made to state police, and state police initiates a mission number for us. And that's strategically how it operates. Mm -hmm. We work under the ICS system, the Incident Command System. That is a federal system that all agencies across the United States utilize for any type of emergency management. Mm. And so what the ICS system does, it's used of course, by FEMA, but it's also used by hospitals and all kinds of things for emergency management. It gives us a structure under which we operate, and it enables agencies to operate autonomously mm -hmm. and together all at the same time. The first thing that's done is we have an area commander and an incident com commander that are on call, and they initiate the mission. There are multiple levels of people that are trained in ICS across mm -hmm. the state, mm -hmm. from the financing of what happens on a mission to calling in air support, uh, you know, but there are, so there are different positions within the ICS. Right, okay, and, and then once the different resources are called, um, yes. you all go out um, to the location and, and yes. search? That is person? correct. So in order to search, we have to have what is called an LKP, last known point, okay, mm -hmm. of the person. If we do not have an LKP, we cannot really effectively search mm -hmm. because then suddenly we're searching the entire state of New Mexico, basically, because right. a person could be anywhere. And a lot of people don't understand that because the LKP is, is exceptionally important for us because it allows us to say, this is the last known place a person has been, so therefore we can expand our search area according to time and distance traveled and all of those things. Right. You know, there was a, um, a situation last year where we thought we had an LKP mm -hmm. and we went and it ended up not being the LKP. 
I see. So then we had no LKP and we were not able to continue searching. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And actually, I want to go back to what you just said, very sad, you know, of not being able to do that search. I'm curious about the emotional aspect of this work because I yes. feel like it would be very intense to look for somebody and then depending on what you may find or maybe yes. may not find, it could be really challenging. It, it is very challenging. Uh, if you do this work, you have to be prepared. You mm -hmm. have to prepare your work. Now, our volunteers, we, we always say, if, if you are not comfortable with a certain situation, you do not have to respond to that, that particular situation. I see. That said, somebody has to do it. And so we do have people on the team that have to buck up and you have to be prepared for whatever you may find. Mm -hmm. And it can be very emotionally stressful. We do have um, uh, some stress management resources through the state that we're able to mm -hmm. tap into. It is very depressing at times. But when you're in the job, you have to be ready and you have to compartmentalize that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when you get home, you, you have to deal with it. And um, thank you for that. Yes. Uh, and, and then I, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about the canine unit itself, because I think you're the leader of both that unit and the base unit. Yes, I'm, I'm the president of a search and rescue, and I'm, I'm the canine unit leader. I've been the canine unit leader for 19 years. That's yes. a long time. A long time. <laughs> a very long time. Uh, but, you know, and uh, base unit leader, uh, I've only been base unit leader, I think, about five years now. Uh -huh. uh, I'm hoping uh, that we will have another base unit leader <laughs> soon. But, but even though I love the base unit, I, I will still help with the base unit. Yes. Uh, because I, I know a lot about navigation and mapping and that type of interface. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Um, but the base unit is a very integral part. It's, it's the centerpiece of a mission mm. because in base is where incident command lives and all the communications and mapping and everything that happens for a mission that details out any clues we find, any information that comes in from the field, that's all processed there. And that is very important to where future resources are going to be you know, even in a few hours or the next day right. where those future resources will be deployed. And so that communication is vital to uh, saving time and maybe saving a life. The canine unit is, like I said, one resource. And so <clears throat> dogs are extremely helpful because we use our eyes to search. The dog uses its nose to search. Mm -hmm. And it gives us a whole different viewpoint in right. the landscape mm -hmm. from which we can work because scent can travel miles. Dogs in the field can alert to human scent a long way away, Right, actually, That's and give us a pinpoint. Uh, tracking dogs can give us direction of travel, even mm -hmm. if we don't aren't able to finish the track because tracking is both man tracking when humans are tracking and dogs tracking can be somewhat time consuming especially if it's an aged track air scent dogs which are which is the scent that travels on the air from the person mm -hmm. directly not um, depending on track that is left on the ground I which see. can dry up yeah and dissipate after a certain time mm -hmm. and gets less and less. Mm -hmm. 
if a person is out there, the air scent is always present, even if they're out there for, th for two weeks or three weeks, which has been the case. People have been rescued that have survived for two and three weeks out in the wilderness. Wow. So how many dogs do you have on your team right now? Uh, right now we have six dogs on the team. Okay. Not all are certified, but all are working towards certification. I see. And so uh, it takes a lot to train a search dog and a handler. You can't have a great dog and a not good handler. You can't have a great handler and a not good dog for that job. I right. mean, it, there are specific requirements for both in order to make an effective search dog team. So what skills do you need from a dog? Uh, is it just a good sense of smell or is there more to it? Oh, there's a lot more to it. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's a good sense of smell, uh -huh. but it's also high drive. That dog needs to have what is called high prey drive. We work the dog through the, through the drive. If a dog does not have high prey drive, it's not going to probably succeed at search and rescue at all. Interesting. Might be very good at something else, but right. not search and rescue. And when you say prey, it's that predatorial instinct of like yes. chasing it's, something. Yes, that's prey drive. Uh -huh. has to have hunt drive. Hunt drive is the need and desire to seek out the prey, to use the nose to seek out the prey. And then the desire to chase the prey down and actually obtain the prey. Right. Okay, uh -huh. which is a polite way <laughs> of saying it. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, if the dog does not have those, now the dog also really needs to have, to be a really good search dog, needs to have a certain amount of independence. Mm. So, um, and good problem solving skills, mm -hmm. good problem solving skills. Mm -hmm. Now you can teach some problem solving skills, but the independence uh, needs to be like, if you have a dog that is like too attached to its owner and won't go away from its owner, that dog won't probably not succeed very well. I see. You uh -huh. see, uh -huh. the dog needs to have some range ability mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. go out and seek the scent. You know, all of that's a tall list and then, mm -hmm. You have to have a dog that is not afraid, that has hard nerves, a dog that is going to come into a challenging situation and be able to go through it very quickly without hesitation. That, that's a lot. Um, just yes. for the, the dog side, what about the handler side? Like, what is needed? Ah, well, it, it's again, it's it's a person who. First has the time. We train one full day every week. That's a lot of time. It's a lot of time. <laughs> It's a lot of time, but we are in the field for an entire day. And sometimes those days, they can be a short day is six hours. Okay. Uh, yeah. A long day is 10 hours, but that's a typical, uh, a mission operational period is 12 hours. And we have to be able to train the dogs to a standard where they are operational for that amount of time right. as well. Mm -hmm. Then there's all the investment that is outside of that. I mean, you have to also still train with the team. You have to do a lot of different trainings with your dog, daily obedience, daily um, holding your dog to a certain standard that is going to enable him to him or her to succeed as a search dog. Right. And, uh, and that just takes daily work. 
Yeah. With her dog. I, I mean, I see that you, you brought your dog. I don't know yes. your, your dog's name. Oh, my dog's name is very difficult. Akio Yoda-san. Okay, can I call him Akio? Y yes, okay? you can call him Akio or Yoda. <laughs> yeah, either one. Well, you, you, you came with him and, you know, you're obviously like t asking him to do things right now. Is that part of every yes. dog that does search and rescue is being with a handler at all times and reacting to their environment no matter what it is? Exactly, I exactly. See. And so, and our dogs have to be very good at public access because we might have to get in an airplane with our dog and fly. Oh. Uh, we... We go, you know, like I sometimes go and train other teams and I fly with my dog. Uh, we go to the body farm uh, to work with the forensic anthropologist there. Can, can you explain to me what that, um, I, I cannot say the name again, the, the farm, the body? The body farm. Yeah, the body farm. What is that? The body farm, it, it, it's, um, it was a location that was started in Virginia uh, by, uh, a, I believe, a forensic forensic anthropologist a long time ago, uh, or quite a few years ago, for the study of the decomposition, decomposition of the human body. And so basically, it was a small plot of land where they would put out different people that had dedicated their body to the study. And uh, they study basically um, that decomposition process in different types of environments. This helps in the solving of murders and uh, or to rule out murder in case of accidental deaths and things like that in, in wilderness settings or even urban settings, mm -hmm. but uh, <clears throat> where, where bodies are. Now there are, I think, oh my gosh, I should know this, I think there's seven body farms across the country. I see. The one that we usually go to is in San Marcos, at the University of Texas, San Marcos. I see. And we take our dogs there. They have designated a certain portion of it that dogs can come on that are search dogs. I see. And so we are able to expose our dogs to a lot more materials than we might have. Right. And in different states. It's very important because the, the dog can, if you've been training on smaller amounts of substance, mm -hmm. then the dog can actually uh, repel off a large amount. Huh. And so you want to make sure your dog is not going to do that. Right. And this gives us an opportunity for that. I and see. in different states. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, uh, the last time I was there, uh, there was a mummified body. Mm -hmm. And that was a very different experience for the dogs. I can imagine. Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's very interesting. I had no idea <laughs> there were uh, body farms around. That's, yes. It makes sense, you know, I understand yes. why. <laughs> yes, we, we all understand why. And, uh, <laughs> there are people that are very generous and um, help with that yes. process. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're training handlers with their dogs, and I'm assuming that once you have a dog that has the defined qualities that you're looking for. Yes. Most of the work is actually on the handler to like teach or share with the dog yes. what they're expecting. Um, and I'm curious how that goes. Okay, so we are using the natural drives of hunt and prey drive mm -hmm. and the na dog's natural ability for scent. So what we're doing with that is that we are teaching the dog that we only want them to hunt human scent. That's a very important thing. Mm -hmm. They cannot hunt other animals. 
like a lot of people will call us and say, my dog is lost. Can mm -hmm. your search dog come find my dog? I very sadly and disappointingly have to tell them no, because mm -hmm. if, my, if I have my dog search for your dog, which he's probably capable of doing, mm -hmm. the next time I go out on a mission, I may not know if he's searching for animals or people. Uh, we need them to be very specific for that one scent, which is human scent, so that we always know when we, we send them out that they are only looking for human scent. Therefore, our dogs can't do something called crittering, which is to go after animals. Now, they're dogs. They're not going to be perfect in that. But right. if we can call them off of that and mm -hmm. say, you know, leave it, get to work, then that's fine. We have to teach them it's only human scent that we want mm -hmm. them to hunt. And when they find that human scent, the way that they, um, they want to do this over and over is because they get a wonderful reward at the end. And that means they get to tug. Okay. Oh, is that the reward? Is that the highest reward they can get? I think the tug is the highest reward. That's my personal viewpoint. Uh -huh. uh, there are people that use balls, and balls are fine. Uh, on our unit, we do tug. And the reason is because if we're floating down the river in the Rio Grande, we can still tug on the boat with our dog. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't really throw the ball. If we're on the cl upper cliffs of the Rio Grande, we don't want to throw a ball. The tug is the simulation of the capture of the prey. Oh. And then it's the, basically, sadly, the killing and the tearing apart of the prey is the tug with other, other um, you know, uh, pack mates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what the subject becomes in a way is like a pack mate that they have found and then they get to tug with that person. Now that's for training. When we find a person on a real mission, it's one of us that tugs with the dog. Does that mean that uh, being a, a dog, a search and rescue dog handler, you don't play with your dog otherwise? Like, can you, <coughs> you, you don't tug because that's the highest reward, I, I but do can not you do something yeah. else? I will tug sometimes, but not with his search and rescue toy. I see. Okay. It's a very special toy. Mm -hmm. It's his favorite toy. I see. And, uh, but I do tug some, mm -hmm. okay? Um, but I mostly play ball with my dog. Mm -hmm. And I think the ball as the recreational device mm -hmm. and retrieve is the best, mm -hmm. really, for his daily exercise. Right. And tug as the play reward, see, to me, that's the ultimate. Because if uh, why I wouldn't want to take the ball away from my dog mm -hmm. uh, when he's not searching. That's going to make me think with my dog, how I play, when I tug, yes. <laughs> what that means, right? What that means. Uh, yes. And that's actually a question I, I think a, the last question I have for you is I think you're not only training um, handlers and dogs for um, search and rescue, but you're yes. also a dog trainer. Yes, I'm a dog trainee, a trainer. I train pet dogs. I also train medical assistants alert dogs, emotional assistance alert dogs. I see. And so yes. I, I was wondering, having worked with so many different dogs in yes. so many different contexts, if, um, if that relationship has taught you something about the, the world around us as humans, how we interact, how we learn, how we engage with each other? I know it's a very big question. but No, no. I think it's a fantastic question. I think, first of all, I think dogs teach us about ourselves. And I think that's a very important thing to realize. I often tell my clients, 
you know, especially <laughs> when they're frustrated with their dog. <laughs> I say, you know, you have the perfect dog for you. you. Everybody always has the perfect dog that comes to them, I believe. That dog, whether you like it or not, that dog has something to teach you mm -hmm. about yourself if you're willing to look at that. So that's, I think, the first thing. It's the magic of dogs, really. Us as humans, however, we need to adjust our attitude about dogs. Dogs are not humans. We should not anthrop... Oh, God, I'm not going to say this right. <laughs> we should not project our own right. emotions on them. Mm -hmm. um, anthropomorphize them. But I think that, uh, uh, you know, we tend to do that a lot. We also tend to think that dogs should just be free, especially here in Taos. You know, I think freedom has to be earned. We have to, you know, the dog, if it's given everything, which we tend to want to give our dogs, especially when we rescue dogs, mm -hmm. we just want to give them everything. Right. They, they, they often do not have a great self-esteem. I find that self-esteem comes through contributing to society. Self-esteem comes through being a contributor, being someone who gives. Dogs are pack animals. They are structured in a society within themselves that um, where each individual gives to the whole of the pack mm -hmm. in order for the pack to survive. And yet we deny that of our dogs. Mm -hmm. We just give them everything. We give them all the toys. We give them all the freedom off lead. We give them everything because we want them to be happy. And to me, that does not denote happiness for a dog. Hmm. What denotes happiness for a dog is good work for the pack. Being able to prove themselves as a vital part, to do a job, to contribute, to be valuable, then they're valuable to themselves. A lot of the pets I work with have self-esteem problems just because they're just given everything. Uh -huh. And I find that that isn't all that emotionally healthy for us or them. While I give to my dog, and my dog is spoiled, okay, it, <laughs> I'm very specific in where I spoil him and how I and when I spoil him. He has to work hard in order to to be spoiled. How would you suggest if somebody had a pet dog, yeah. like what kind of contribution can the dog do to earn that self-esteem? Yes, I think dogs contribute. They contribute to the family. So one way they can contribute is through good social manners and learning good social manners. They can contribute by, um, you know, they live in our world. So therefore, they must learn obedience of some sort mm -hmm. so that we can keep them safe. It's not so they can be obedient. It's so that we can keep them safe from things they may not understand, cars and other situations. Mm -hmm. They also contribute by giving us emotional comfort and support. Every person that has a dog gets emotional comfort and support whether they need an emotional support animal or not. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. That's what dogs give to us. They give us unconditional love. But we can also teach them small things around the house to do for us. Dogs are extremely smart. They're extremely resilient. I want to say that, you know, the old adage, uh, 
if you don't, you know, catch them at doing something, then um, they won't understand. I think that is so untrue. They understand so much. Hmm. I have seen scent dogs take a scent and know what that scent is eight months later. I, they have amazing memories, mm -hmm. I'm telling you. I, I, I think that we discount them often. We discount their ability to learn and to remember. To me, they have so much to teach us, and I think at the same time, uh, we ought to treat them more uh, with respect in terms of not just spoiling them and giving them everything, but allowing them to do work and to grow and to learn more things. Mm -hmm. Because then I see very fulfilled dogs. I see dogs that are happy and confident. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I see the big difference. I can imagine. Thank yeah. you. Thank yes. you. I really appreciate that. And yes your time here today. Um, is there anything you would like to mention about all of our conversation, our search and rescue, yes. before we, we end up? Um, uh, I just want to say that, well, first, Tell Search and Rescue is able to operate through the generosity of our community. And I want to thank our community with the bottom of our hearts, because every year they, help, they, they step up and they provide our operational budget so we can do what we do. Uh, without that, we could not operate. And so we're so grateful to our community. That was Delinda Van Brighton talking with Alice Morion. Find out more about the Taos Search and Rescue at sar-taos.org. That's sar-taos.org. And if you're interested in volunteering or receiving their quarterly newsletter, please do reach out to them. Where We Meet comes from Taos Center for the Arts in Taos, New Mexico, and is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Producers include Colette LaBeouf, Chelsea Reedy, Elise Morion, Ariana Cubillos-Vogler, and Joshua Aragon. Research and writing by Jacqueline Paul. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. On Where We Meet, we share conversations from New Mexico and beyond. Thanks for listening. Be well.